Well, most of us uh, know this is true. We don't necessarily say it. Uh, most people in our world in our, uh, know it's true, but it's not really the way we say things. Uh, but we, we, we are broken. We, this is a broken world. We use words like dysfunctional. I, I get, I almost get a kick out of that. A long time ago, people talked about families that have sin problems, and now we just say that this family has a dysfunctional issue. It's the same problem, it's just a dysfunctional thing instead of a sin issue. We, we have a problem as human beings. Our problem as human beings, um, well, from a Christian perspective, not everybody's going to agree with this statement. I know that. So I'm just going to say, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you don't agree with what I'm about to say, I don't, I understand. If we want to talk to me about it, that'd be fine. I would love to have a conversation with you. But from a Christian perspective, from, from the perspective of a follower of Jesus, the, our problem is we are broken, dysfunctional human beings. And, and the problem is it can all boil down to we have un, unbelieving hearts. We as individuals have unbelieving hearts that have turned away from our Creator. The living God. Um, and that's not simply an issue of, 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 for, of, for atheists or people who aren't Christians. Uh, the vast majority of, of uh, humans believe in the existence of some supreme being, whether it's the, the God of uh, Jesus or some other supreme being. We're not talking about uh, not believing in, in, in the existence of God. Uh, the problem isn't uh, confined to bad behavior or immoral behavior either. Behavior is a symptom of our unbelieving hearts. And at the core of who we are, we just, we don't want to say it, but it's true. At the core of who we are in our hearts, we don't trust God. We don't believe God cares for us or wants the best for us. That's what an unbelieving heart is all about. And this unbelieving heart influences all of our decisions, including how we respond to Jesus. And that was true 2,000 years ago with the people who met Jesus face to face. Uh, it's just as true now. So how did people respond to Jesus then? Because we haven't changed in 2,000 years. The responses are generally the same. There were and are three general or broad responses to Jesus. And one of the, uh, we're going to find one of those uh, responses to Jesus in the events recorded at the, the verses we're going to read today from Mark uh, 
Mark's record of Jesus' life and ministry, Mark chapter 2, verse 23, through Mark chapter 3, verse 6. I, the, when you say that, it sounds like, when I say that, I know it sounds like I'm going to be reading a long section, but it's actually only two paragraphs. It just starts in one chapter and ends in the other. Um, we are in... Jesus has already gotten himself in trouble. Uh, the very beginning of chapter 2, Mark, Mark chapter 1, he, Mark introduces us to Jesus as the Son of Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, and he's come preaching. He's been baptized. He's been tempted in the wilderness. He's come. He's preached that the kingdom of God is at hand. We're to repent, turn directions, and start following God, turning toward God. And He's healed a lot of people. He's cast. He he went he went to the synagogue. Or for those of us who are not gent, those of us who are Gentiles and not Jewish, he went to church and blew up the order of worship because he did something that was out of ordinary. He cast a demon out of a guy who was at church or at synagogue, and that was just unheard of. That kind of stuff doesn't happen. But he, that didn't get him in trouble. At least not that time. Uh, he got in trouble in the, at the beginning of, uh, of Mark chapter 2 because he told a paralyzed man that his sins were forgiven. And the religious folks are going, no, 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 no. Not out loud, but to themselves, they were saying, no, 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 only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, well, just so you know that I, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, has the authority to forgive sins. He said to the man, take up your bed and walk, because only God can take a paralyzed man and heal him on the spot. So he was already in trouble at the beginning of Mark chapter 2. Things haven't changed a whole lot. If you read back through the rest of Mark chapter 2, he's still, he's still getting in trouble. And here at the end of Mark chapter 2, Jesus is going through the grain fields on a Sabbath. With, uh, that's a Saturday for those of us who aren't aware of that. Uh, it's on a Sabbath, the, the, the holy day for the Jewish people. And his disciples began to pick some heads of wheat as they made their way. And so the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing this? What are they doing? What is against the law on the Sabbath? They were working. You know, I picked up the head of wheat off of the grain and uh, rubbed it in their hands and ate a few seeds. They were working on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that. And Jesus said to them, have you never read? He just completely, he did, it's almost like he ignores their question and tells them a story. It reminds them of a history lesson. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God when Abathar was high priest and ate the sacred bread, which is against the law for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to his companions. Then he said to him, 
to them. The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. For this reason, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3. And Jesus entered the synagogue again. Another Sabbath day, Jesus is in the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so they could accuse him. One of the rules that had been rules or traditions that had been developed in in, Jew, in the the Jewish religious thought was well, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, and so if you attempt to heal somebody who's not actually dying on the Sabbath, you're working. So wait till you know wait till the sun goes down on the Sabbath because that's when the Sabbath ends, and then you can. Heal them, and it's not—it's not you're not breaking the rules. Um, so they're waiting, they're watching. What's he going to do? I mean, he's already told us that he thinks he's the Lord of the Sabbath. What's he going to do? So he said to the man with the withered hand, "Stand up among all these people." I want to use you as an object lesson. Please. Like it's not bad enough to show up in church with a with her hand that you have to now be the center of attention. But no, I'm sorry. I read between the lines sometimes. And then he said to them, the people who were watching him, to see if they could accuse him, he asked them a question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil? To save a life or destroy it? But they were silent. After looking around at them in anger, grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. So the Pharisees went out immediately and began plotting with the Herodians as to how they could assassinate him. Now, before I go any further, I just want you to catch what happened here. Did you, Jesus' question was, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil, to save a life or to destroy it? They wouldn't say anything, so Jesus saved a life by healing the man's hand. And they answered by their actions and went out to decide how they could assassinate him. Their answer was, it is lawful to figure out how to kill somebody on the Sabbath. How many of you remember the Ten Commandments? One of them says, thou shalt not murder. Right after it says, you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. It says you shouldn't murder. But it's okay to figure out how to murder somebody on the Sabbath. No, okay. 
Are you following me? This yeah, well, maybe. We're going to just, uh, anyway. But I also want you to know this. What was, Jesus looked at them in anger, but the reason he was angry, he was grieved. He was brokenhearted by their hard hearts, the hardness of their hearts. This is one of the first, this is one of the three responses we can have to Jesus. Hard-hearted response, that unbelieving heart. What is a hard, hardened heart? A hard heart is a heart that refuses to listen to the truth. It is a heart that refuses to consider the truth. It is a heart that refuses to acknowledge the truth. It is a heart that refuses to accept the truth. It is a heart that refuses to reject a lie when it hears the truth. That's the unbelieving heart. It's the, it's the heart that can look God in the flesh, in the eye, and go, I got to kill him. Because he's breaking the rules. Somehow he's putting people above my rules. Here's the problem. The longer a hardened heart refuses the truth, the harder it becomes for that person to turn back to God. The harder the heart becomes. Again, we're not talking about atheists. We're not talking about you know, pagans. We're not talking about people who didn't believe in the one true God. These were God's people in a place of worship who were more interested in keeping rules than they were in helping people. And after witnessing that something that only God could have done, decided that they needed to kill the person who brought in this miracle to their synagogue. Not because he broke the Ten Commandments, but because he broke a tradition. Hard-hearted. Unbelieving. Then there's a half-hearted response. The crowds of people that follow Jesus are a great, great example of a half-hearted response. Uh, they kept coming as long as he kept the miracles coming, as long as he kept doing things that, that they liked and that they wanted. They supported Jesus as long as his actions fit what they thought the Messiah was supposed to do. And as long as his agenda, their, he fit their agendas and their plans, they, were, they thought he was awesome. They were the ones who followed him on Palm Sunday yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the same ones who just a few days later yelled, Crucify, Crucify. They were half-hearted. As long as he was doing what they thought he should be doing, they thought he was great, but the moment he wasn't, they turned on him. And then the third response is the response that Jesus invited people to. And it's a wholehearted response. It's the response of a level of relationship with God that Jesus called people to. Later in Mark, one of the experts in the law came to Jesus and asked him, which, which commandment is the most important? And Jesus replied, 
But most important is this. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. All of the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. Wholehearted response. What he calls us to, to love him. So what keeps our hearts from that wholehearted response? What keeps us, uh, what keeps our hearts hard and unbelieving? It's really a half-hearted heart is really just appears to be something other than a hard heart. A hard, un unbelieving heart, the problem with it is it's impossible to spot in the mirror. We may think we can see it in other people. It's pretty easy for us to look at 2,000 years later. Hindsight is 2020, is what I've been told. Uh, you know, 2,000 years later, as we look back at these folks sitting in a synagogue, uh, it's pretty easy for us to go, well, yeah, they obviously are hard-hearted. They want to kill Jesus. They saw nothing wrong. These deeply devout men saw nothing wrong with plotting to assassinate Jesus. How could people who were deeply devoted to trying to follow the, the, the laws of God decide that it's okay to kill people? make similar mistakes. We make similar decisions. James talks about how our tongues can assassinate, kill, destroy. We can, uh, we can add uh, observing our church's moral codes and and becoming accomplished in church activities to believing in God and somehow think that that's important. We can find some comfort and security in thinking that we're following the rules and you know, people can look up to us as experts in, in prayer and Bible study and, and or some other activity in the church and, and we can do all these re religious activities and they can become an idol for us. Let me explain that. You know, it's not like you've got a statue in the corner. None of these people had a statue in the corner, but an idol is anything that we put our hope in uh, other than or in addition to God. So an idol is anything that we say, uh, I believe in God, but I also need this. It's what the, the prophets were constantly saying to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Trust God only don't trust God and the Egyptians or just don't trust God and the Assyrians don't make treaties with these other countries to take care of you trust God to take care of you and occasionally we got we, we, we see glimpses of that kind of faith and trust you know our, our some trust in chariots but our trust is in God 
But a lot of the times we put our faith in Jesus and. And the telltale sign of adultery is a hard-heartedness. And there's really only one response to this idol, idol worship, this adding of things, Jesus plus. And the only response to hard-heartedness is unbelieving heart is confession and repentance. And the tragic thing is people with hard hearts are often the last ones to realize they have hard hearts. really hard to spot when we look in the mirror. Left to ourselves, to be quite blunt about it, left to ourselves, we will not realize we have a hard, unbelieving heart. I'm good. I'm fine. And the longer we say it, the longer we have this hardened heart that refuses the truth, the harder it becomes for us to turn back to God. But there is good news. The Holy Spirit can soften the hardest of hearts. We're not left to ourselves. I think of a man named Saul. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. He's one of these guys. I've looked, there's really no indication that he was one of the ones that plotted to kill Jesus. But he did participate in the martyrdom of Stephen. And he was on his way to the city of Damascus with arrest warrants and, and permission. I, I think he may have had a license to kill like James Bond. Many followers of Jesus. When Jesus literally knocked him off his high horse. Or whatever other animal he may have been riding. And in the process, transformed Saul into Paul, the church starting missionary and author of most of the letters that are collected in under. Testament. <clears throat> See, God doesn't leave us to ourselves. We are not left to ourselves. The most important ministry of the Holy Spirit in, in our lives is to fill us up until we love God wholeheartedly and love others as Jesus has loved us. So this is the this is I want you to I want this to kind of become your own personal sermon in a sentence to, and, and, and to repeat this to yourself and for yourself often. God can soften the hardest heart, even mine. God can soften the hardest heart, even mine. Encountering King Jesus is the only thing, though, that will bring us to our knees, bring you to your knees, bring me to my knees in confession and repentance. Is seeing Jesus, the King of Kings, that will open our eyes to the truth about our unbelief and our hard-hearted response to God. 
it's seeing Jesus that will deal with our, our idols and our the futility of trying to add something to him. We don't need anything besides Jesus. Jesus plus nothing is more than enough. Jesus is enough. The, over, the only way to overcome idols in our lives is to see that Jesus gives us freely what we think these other things are going to give us if we work for them. The only way to receive a soft, softened, trusting heart is to see Jesus, our King, our Savior, our God, to see him for who he is. The only way to receive a softened heart and to come to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then begin to be able to love others with the love that he has shown us is for us to see him. Over and over and over again. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you more than we realize, I'm sure. She'd open our eyes to see in Jesus. Focus our, our hearts on his majesty, his love, his grace, and his mercy, his holiness, his power and authority. Give us a transforming encounter with Jesus, Holy Spirit. Search our lives and reveal any idols we're grasping. Show us where we're not okay. to cast down all those idols. Show us the truth about us, about ourselves, that we can't see without you. Show us the truth about Jesus that we can't see without you. Open our hearts. Deepen our trust and confidence in Jesus. Until we are absolutely, completely, totally convinced that Jesus is more than enough. Restore us, refresh us in ways that 
changes through me to make his world kingdom. Oh, help us to love each other and love the people around us like Jesus does, like he's loved us. Those of you who are online, let's take a moment to thank you for connecting with us. And um, if you haven't already joined the Champions of Hope, I invite you to uh, join that Facebook group using the link in the description. And uh, love to connect with you that way. But whether you're online or on site, <coughs> Jesus sends us. I want to pause and remind you that when Jesus sends us, it's not like he stays here and we have to leave him. When Jesus sends us, he's basically saying, come with me. He's not sending us out alone, he's going with us. So he's sending us to go with him in the power of his Holy Spirit to love people who desperately need the love, the love that only God can give them. So go, you are sent with Jesus. <laughs>